But it's good to see you here today. It's kind of an intimate gathering today, and we trust the Lord in that. Uh, it's an important portion of Paul's letter to the Galatians that we come to today that I'm excited for. I hope you are too. And we were talking before uh, the service in our pre-service meeting just about how important the Lord's Day is and corporate worship and the wisdom of God in that. Uh, I don't know about you, but I need this every week. Uh, we all do. That's why God told us not to neglect it because we need to be brought together to be reminded of Christ and his righteousness in the gospel. We need to be reminded of how much we need God's grace and God's help, how much we need each other. So it's good uh, that we're here together today. And so let's go to God now and ask him for his help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask you to show up here. As we've already asked for uh, in the service in general, we ask now for you to come and minister in power as we look to your word. I'm a sinner, a finite and fallen man, and I am certainly insufficient for this task. We all are insufficient in and of ourselves to hear your word and understand it, love it, rejoice over it. Those are supernatural things. And so we pray that you would come by your spirit and make those things happen today in our midst. We pray that we would hear your word and love your word and rejoice over what's in it, that we would be helped in our understanding, but that we would be helped in our hearts and our minds and our lives. So we pray, God, that you would come and be with us now. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So I normally, you guys know this, in terms of the introduction piece of a sermon, my main goal is to, to try to set up the conversation, to set up the main theme of what our text is, to bring all of us into the conversation. And as I thought about this week's passage, I think that the best possible introduction that I could give is the inspired text that has brought us to these verses. So we're going to consider the arguments that Paul has been making in the book of Galatians. We're going to think about the context that we find verses 19 through 22 of chapter 3 in. And we're going to let that set the stage for the conversation. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to Galatians chapter 3. You don't have to necessarily look at the text yet. I'm going to basically give us a flyover of Galatians 1.1 all the way through Galatians 3.18. Just to orient us in terms of where we are and what Paul has been arguing for. And then how that really does beg the question that he asks in verse 19 of chapter 3. Why then the law? So if you remember, Paul is writing to the Galatian Christians... Because there has been a distortion of the gospel. There has been a false gospel preached and heralded in the churches in Galatia. And remember what that error was. False teachers were telling these Galatians, Galatian Christians excuse me, that they, alongside faith in Christ, needed to observe the law in order to be righteous. That they, alongside faith in Christ, needed to be circumcised. That these works of the law were necessary as a piece of justification, of being declared righteous. Faith in Christ, yes, but that in and of itself is not enough. These works are also required. That was the distortion. We considered that in great detail when we were in that portion of the letter. Paul then goes about defending his own ministry and his authority, essentially, in most of chapter 1 and 2. He makes it clear that he's not preaching his gospel in order to please people. He apparently had been accused of that. 
Paul, you're a people pleaser. You are trying to say what people want to hear. You're telling these Gentile believers in particular that the works of the law and circumcision are necessary. You're just doing that because of fear of man or something. He refutes that in chapter 1, verse 10. And then he also refutes the charge that he was preaching some man-made gospel, something that he had just come up with or that was some human construct. He says, no, not true. I am preaching the gospel that I received from God. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ, and that's what I'm proclaiming. But then he also responded to the charge that his gospel, his teaching, was not in accord with the apostles in Jerusalem, where all this whole thing got started. Paul, you're saying something that doesn't jive with Peter and James and those dudes that are in Jerusalem. And he refutes that claim as well, demonstrating quite clearly that he is preaching the same gospel that those brothers were preaching, that those apostles were preaching. He then recounts for us an incident in which he corrected Peter. He corrected Peter because Peter was not living in step with the gospel. If you remember, Peter was in Antioch with with, uh, Gentile believers, excuse me, and he was eating with them, not observing Jewish food laws. He was living like a Gentile amongst them. But then some Jewish believers came down from Jerusalem, and Peter's behavior immediately changed. And Paul recounts that incident and his rebuke of Peter, saying, Brother, look, you can't, you can't do this. You and I both know that righteousness does not come by keeping the law. And you're going to confuse everybody if you live this way. You must repent. You must stop living like this and live in accord with the gospel and step with it. So he tells us about that incident to demonstrate in part his authority that he's standing on the truth of God to rebuke even another apostle and how he was living. He then goes about telling us how Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, how he has died, Jesus has, has died to the law in our place. And so that we really, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have died in Christ to the law and are now free from the law. And we now live by faith in the Son of God. That's Paul's argument. He emphasizes that beginning in chapter 3, so we're kind of now making our way into Galatians 3, verse 1. He starts to contend there that the Galatian Christians really are a part of the people of God because they have been given the Holy Spirit. That's how they've been marked out. Used to be circumcision in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. That's how people were distinguished from the rest of the, the peoples. That's how God's people were distinguished, I should say. Circumcision, but not now. In the New Covenant era, it's different. The new birth, the Holy Spirit, is what marks off God's people. So these Galatian believers really are a part of the people of God because they've received the Spirit through faith. And then Paul begins to argue from a redemptive historical perspective that God has always saved people by faith. That He has always reconciled people to Himself and declared them righteous Through faith. And he goes to the example of Abraham to make that clear. And we've been considering Abraham now for a few weeks. He makes the point that this man to whom circumcision was given was justified by faith. He makes the point that those who are the spiritual children of Abraham, those who are the children of promise, are those who are of faith. And he makes it quite clear that God had always intended to save not just Jewish people, but the nation the Gentiles included, through faith in his son, Jesus. And then 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham, the law came. So this is where we were last week. And this is really setting up an interesting question, a real legitimate question. Paul continues his argument to say, look, 
Let me demonstrate to you that this has always been about God's promise and about salvation by faith, justification by faith. God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to essentially give him land and eternal blessing, which we know and we've talked about would be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth ultimately in being with God forever. He made him that promise, and then 430 years later, he gave the law God did through Moses. And that covenant, that Mosaic covenant that came 430 years after the covenant with Abraham does not annul the covenant with Abraham in any way. That was the argument that we considered in depth last week. The inheritance, that land and eternal blessedness that God had promised to Abraham would be delivered to all of God's people by promise, through faith, not by works of the law. And so that brings us to where we are today. All of this begs the question, at least I think so, I hope you agree, Paul certainly thinks so too, why then the law? He anticipates that. That's the first, I kind of gave us a little bit of a preview for this and sort of said, hey, you know, come back next week. My trailer was obviously very ineffective uh, based on everybody who's out of town and not well today. Uh, we trust God in that. Um, so, the, yeah, this question, why then the law? It's just right there on the face of it. Paul, help us understand then why God gave the law. If it's always been about faith and it's always been about promise and not about works of the law, what's the deal? What were the purposes of God in giving the law? Good questions. Questions I would want to know the answer to. I trust that you do too. And so now I want to read the text. Galatians 3, 19 through 22. And then we'll continue on and try to unpack it and understand it together. So put your eyes now on verse 19 as I read the word of God for us. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have three points, three pieces of this sermon for our consideration. I'm just going to give them to you one at a time for the will service best today. So point number one, piece number one of the sermon is this. Paul demonstrates in this text the first and primary purpose of the law. Paul demonstrates, argues for, the first and primary purpose of the law. And so now we're going to look to the text going to wrestle with it to understand what that first and primary purpose of the law is. So if you look again at verse 19, the million dollar question, why then the law? Paul's first words in response are that it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sins. And then he tells us that it was added because of sins until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And we know who that is. The offspring to whom it had ultimately been made, that promise, was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The representative offspring of Abraham. Okay. So I think that just taking those first two or three phrases there of Paul's response, I think the restraint of human evil is in view. But I think something greater and more primary is the issue. So God, didn't, God did give the law to restrain human evil. But that's not what Paul's talking about primarily here. 
The law was given because of sin, and that until Jesus would come. I think Paul's reasoning here is along the lines of what he says in Romans 5.20. In Romans 5.20, Paul says that the law came in to increase the trespass. And what he means by that, to increase the trespass, is that, in other words, the law was given in order to reveal the power and the depth and the pervasiveness of human sin. And so another important point of observation, we're going to consider that, that piece more, but another important point of observation just in these early words is that the time that the law would serve, even as this kind of guardian, if you look down to verse 24, Paul will talk about the fact that the law was our guardian until Christ would come. Even that time frame where the law would serve as a guardian was always limited. It was always in, like an intermittent, interim arrangement, the law was. Because we see even in verse 19, the all was added because of transgressions until the promised one would come, the offspring to whom the promise had been made. But let's continue now in verse 19. We see there that the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. But what do these things mean? The question to be asked is, were angels present when the law was given on Mount Sinai? The Old Testament is unclear. It doesn't tell us explicitly that angels were on Mount Sinai with the Lord and Moses as he was giving the law. But of course, it's not unreasonable to assume that they would have been there. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, if you're familiar with that account, where Stephen is martyred in that portion of the book of Acts, he says to the Jewish audience that's about to stone him to death, he tells them that they received the law as delivered by angels, but they, they did not keep it. So when Paul says here that the law was delivered through angels, he's not coming up with anything new. He's saying what Stephen had said. And it's quite plausible that angels were present at the giving of the law. That was often the case. The heavenly host would be with the Lord when he would speak and when he would act. The intermediary that's mentioned here at the end of verse 19 is most clearly Moses. The intermediary that would be the agent through whom the law was given is Moses, the man to whom God gave the Ten Commandments and the Levitical Law. Let's move on to verse 20 because we're going to wrestle with some of the particularities of this. This verse, verse 20, has been interpreted a number of ways through history, just being real. Um, it's always good for you to know that there is disagreement on how to understand verse 20, even amongst people that we would all respect. Commentators are all over the map. So what I'm going to do is lay out for you where I landed on verse 20 and why. And then obviously it's there for you and you can judge my exposition. So literally, I don't, I don't like to go to the original languages except when I think it's really helpful in a sermon. And so right here in verse 20, given that it's a short verse, the original language is important here. That verse could literally be rendered. Now, the mediator is not of one, but God is one. I'm going to say that again. Now, the mediator is not of one, but God is one. A mediator is not of one party. Right? There are multiple parties involved if there's a mediator by necessity. That's what Paul is saying. But God is one. Okay. So rendering it that way, I really don't love the way the ESV renders it, and that's not a slam against those guys at all. But this is why we, why we examine the text. So, no, so with that understanding of what the verse says, now the mediator, a mediator, is not of one party. It's not, there are multiple parties. But God is one. What is Paul arguing for? What's the point that he's making? That's the real issue here. This verse, verse 20, along with the tail end of verse 19, seems to function, at least as I understand the text, as I'm reading the text, it functions to demonstrate the inferiority of the law to the promise. The fact that 
the law is subordinate to the promise. That's the argument that Paul is making, clearly. I think you're tracking with me. And so Paul is further demonstrating that. He's further arguing for, essentially, the supremacy of the promise over the law. And he is arguing that the promise was given directly by God to Abraham. Right? Directly. God makes a promise to the man. But on the other hand, the law was given through angels to Moses to the people. So you see there's this direct relationship between God and Abraham and the promise being made. There's a oneness about that. Whereas there are these multiple parties involved in the giving of the law. And given that God is one, and given just the nature of those two scenarios, how different they were, Paul is arguing for the superiority of the promise. The promise is superior. The law is subordinate to the promise. There is no intermediary necessary when it comes to the promise of God. Whereas there were multiple, in one sense, intermediaries, angels and Moses, required in the giving of the law. So the point of verses like tail end of 19 and verse 20, the point that Paul is trying to hammer home there is that the promise and the law are not on the same plane. The plane of the promise is higher than the plane of the law, so to speak. And so now as we kind of look into verse 21, let's continue to wrestle with what Paul is saying. Given all the arguments that he's been making and the contrasting that he's doing between the promise and the law, and given how he's just demonstrated that the promise and the law are not on the same plane, another question is essentially begged of him. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is is the law and the promise, are they at odds with one another? And he, of course, answers, certainly not. And then he goes on to argue, verse 21, as you see this here. If the law, or if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be through the law. Verse 22, but Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's an interesting argument he's making. What actually would have been contradictory is if the law could have given life and righteousness. That's what would have been contradictory. Then it would have been a contradiction because there would have been two opposite ways of salvation. There would have been two opposite ways of justification if the law could give life and righteousness. You would have had the promise over here that says... Justification, life, righteousness comes by faith. But then you would have had the law over here. Contradictory. Saying no. Righteousness, life, eternal blessedness comes through law keeping. Comes through merit. That would have been the contradiction. That's what Paul is saying. There's no contradiction here at all. Because it's quite clear that there is one way of salvation. Always has been. God's promise to be Received by faith. Paul, as I've mentioned, appealed to the oneness of God in verse 20. In addition to the way he used it to make the argument there, I think it's reasonable to have in view the fact that there is this one way of salvation. God is not divided. He is not conflicted over how men are going to be justified. It's quite clear that there has always been one way of salvation for all people. Paul says the exact same thing in Romans chapter 3 and verse 30. So there's a consistency here throughout all of Scripture and even throughout the writings of Paul. It's really helpful for us. 
This matters. Friends, this feels, I'm sure this maybe feels kind of like, all right, we're digging deep and maybe this is teachy, but this is really practical and helpful for us as we think about how to understand the law and the promise. The law clearly, as Paul has been redundant about almost, the law does not give life. Therefore, righteousness is not through the law. And that's because Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. You see that in verse 22. God's special revelation, as God gave that to man, it imprisoned everything under sin. What that means is that it reveals, God's law reveals, God's word reveals the prison, the bondage of sin. The bondage that we are all in. And the purpose of all this, you see that word so that in verse 22, or those two words. Those are great words. So that. This is why God is doing this. So that through faith in Jesus Christ, the promise might be given to those who believe. The law, in that sense, drives us to the promise. You see what Paul is saying. The law and the fact that we are in bondage to sin and the law in its perfect and righteous requirements ruins us and crushes us and then drives us to the promise. It drives us to the promised one in particular. So if I wanted to bring all of this kind of to a, a close in one sense in terms of Paul's argument and put a bow on this thing. Let's summarize his argument and what he's saying. The main point that he's making. It's that the law was given. Why then the law? First and primary reason the law was given. First and primary use or purpose of the law is that it was given to show us our bondage under sin and then to point us to the offspring through whom the promise would come. I'm going to say that again. The law was given to show us our bondage under sin and to point us to the offspring through whom the promise would come. The law was subservient to the promise, to the coming of the promised offspring. That's clear. The law was never intended to save. It was never an intention of God to make men, declare men righteous through the law. So if you remember last week we were considering this, that none of this in terms of the covenants of God and the promises of God in these things, None of this happens in a vacuum. We sometimes can think of it like that. Almost like just as though these covenants sort of stand on their own. But we do bad and sometimes stupid things with them when we think that way. It's important that we remember, like we considered last week, that all of this, all of these covenants are being given as God is unfolding his plan of redemption. We thought about the fact that there was a covenant according to works that God made with Adam and Adam and Eve failed. Just as we would have failed. And so we were plunged into ruin in that moment. The creation was cursed. And yet God made a good promise. That there would come one through whom the head of the serpent would be crushed. Right? He's promising Jesus even in Galatians 3. As men are plunging the entire human race and the entire creation into ruin. God makes a good promise. And so then beginning with Genesis 3.15 and that promise of the one who would come. God's covenant of redemption essentially is inaugurated. And we thought about how God then gives various covenants within that big overarching covenant of redemption. Okay. The law, in particular the Mosaic law, the covenant God made with Moses, it was not given in a vacuum. It does not stand on its own. It happened and was given in the context of God's big salvation plan and covenant of redemption. 
And so the law was given, as we've already thought, to reveal the depth and the power and the pervasiveness of human sin. So how does the law serve God's plan of redemption? It reveals that. It does demonstrate and reveal God's standard of perfect righteousness. And therefore, it serves to point us to our only hope, namely the Messiah of God, the Savior who would come. So this is all helpful in understanding how Paul can say, like he'll often say, and like we say, we still uphold the law. We say that. The law has not been abolished. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. Amen. But we uphold the law. And sometimes that can like break our brains as we're like, well, these things seem so contradictory. But when you begin to think, now a proper distinction needs to be made between the law and the gospel. That's true. But when you start to understand the covenants that God has made, how he has revealed this through through the, the unfolding of space and time, these things start to make more sense. And we can start to hold this together in a way that's helpful. Some of the law was fulfilled by Christ in such a way that it's not even conceivable to practice it anymore. Like namely the sacrificial system. What on earth would that even mean? The Day of Atonement, for example. Why would we do that now that Christ has fulfilled that? Even, even the Passover. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't you know, observe that in some way, but we are in no way bound to do it. Because God, is the, or excuse me, God has given us the Passover lamb in Christ. The Lord's Supper, in one sense, is a fulfillment of that Passover meal as realized in God's community of believers called the church. The tabernacle and the temple construct even. We've thought about how God in the Old Covenant, initially the tabernacle was his presence on earth with his people. There was the Holy of Holies in particular where nobody could come. But then when Jesus came, he said, I'm the temple. Tear this down, I'll rebuild it in three days. He's talking about the fact that God is dwelling with you. I'm him. But then as Christ ascended, who came? The Holy Spirit, right? And so now the Holy Spirit indwells God's people, the church. So the church is the temple of God now. This is how we understand Scripture. So some of the law has been fulfilled in such a way that it's not even conceivable to practice it the way that it was revealed before. Some of the laws have been spoken to directly. Let's just take, for example, food laws. Two different times in the New Testament, Mark chapter 7, Jesus makes it very clear that what goes into a man is not what defiles him, but what comes out of him. He's just that, look, it doesn't matter what you eat. What you eat isn't defiling you. you know. But then also... In the book of Acts, as Luke records that for us, Peter has a vision and a dream in which God declares all foods clean. Okay, so that's been spoken to clearly. So that's why we don't abide by old covenant food laws in any sort of you know, condemnatory way. Like, oh my gosh, you're eating shellfish. Your boy here can't eat them anyway. I'm allergic to them. But if you were to eat you know, shellfish or pork or whatever, and I know Alan Reed will give me an amen on bacon, um, you, know, you are not condemned for that. Why? Because that is no longer binding. And then at the same time, having said these things, we can say that the law has not passed away. We can say that it is true that the law was never intended to save. It was never intended to be the means of righteousness and eternal life. And at the same time, it is certainly true that the law is useful in the life of the believer and we uphold it. So an understanding of this and the uses of the law is really important for you and me. Just in sum, to be crystal clear and redundant like Apostle Paul was. The law was given, first and foremost, to show us our sin and point us to the Savior. Through whom comes life and righteousness, through whom comes eternal blessedness. This is the first and primary use of the law, full stop. 
That's Paul's argument in Galatians 3, 19 to 22. So through history, it's important that we would understand this. And in particular, because we are children of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Since that era, I mean, through church history, you know, even before that, but especially since the Reformation, people have talked about the uses of the law in three ways. The three uses of God's law. The first use, as articulated by the Reformers, is this. To show us our sin and point us to the Savior. Where did they get that? They got it from Paul. The second use of the law is to restrain human wickedness. So let me just, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I think I'm going to, we'll go ahead and call what I'm saying right now. I'm sort of making a seamless transition maybe, and maybe that doesn't serve you well. We're going to call this point two of the outline. Just thinking about the three uses of the law for you. This is going to be very brief. So the first use we've been considering. The second use through history as it's been articulated is to restrain human wickedness. So that's clear. What do we mean by that? The law of God denounces wicked behavior. You see that as well as I do. The law of God prescribes punishment for that wicked behavior. And so it allows for a limited measure of justice on earth, even before the perfect justice of God is administered at the end of history. So that is a legitimate use of the law. But then the third use, as it was, has been articulated through history, this is not unique to me or to Ron, the pastors of this church, If the first use is to show us our sin and point us to the Savior, and the second use is to restrain human evil, the third use is that it tells us what is pleasing to God. The law tells us what is pleasing to God. In other words, it tells us how to live. So rather than trying to break the law down into categories that I think are sometimes forced, I would rather us just talk about the law this way. Let's talk about the law in the the ways that it has been used of God and the intentions of God in giving it. So I told you that second point was very brief. It's already over. Like blank and you missed it. So now we're going to continue on to point number three, consideration number three for us. And this is a question, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. The question is this. What is the place of the law in the life of the believer? What is the place of the law in the life of the believer? I've kind of been waiting this whole series to do this uh, because I think the argument in Galatians does beg this question. What do we make of the law which Paul answers in its first use in the letter. But then what do we make of the law in terms of this issue that it is important in the life of the Christian? It doesn't save me. I'm not saved by keeping it. But it matters, right? It does matter. So it's important that we would think about that and try to wrestle with that together. And we'll trust God that many of our brothers and sisters are away and not well. Maybe we could even try to get audio out somehow. We'll, we'll put some minds together and think about how we could get audio available to the congregation. So let's wrestle with this question. What is the place of the law in the life of the Christian? So first, this is where we start. This is something we never move beyond. You're not going to be shocked to hear me say this. The first use of the law in the life of the Christian is to continually show you and me our need for Jesus. The the place of the law in the life of the Christian first has to be that. That it would continually show us our need for Jesus. How? Because it exposes our sin. It exposes our sin. It shows us how wrong our behavior is. But then even more than that, it shows us how wrong our hearts are. You want to do some heart analysis? Start reading the law of God. And it's like, oh my gosh, I, I don't measure up well. And so this should be on the front of our minds, not in a way that we would feel condemned, because we're not condemned anymore by the law in Christ, praise God. But where we would look at it, honestly, like every day, we would 
assess ourselves in light of it and realize anew, I got no shot before God standing in my own merit. And I am fleeing as fast as I can, casting myself headlong on the mercy of God in Christ again today. We never move beyond that, ever. That God requires perfect righteousness and we don't have it and He provided it in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ fulfilled the law and paid for my sin and that is my only hope, that is the only ground of my standing before the Lord. We never move beyond it. So that's the first way that the law is useful in the life of the Christian. Shows you your desperate need for Christ and drives you to Him every single day. Second piece of this though has to be How is the law useful in the life of the believer? It's to be our guide. To be our guide for living. So quite simply, it tells you and me how to live. And let's be real for a moment. We need that. We need that because we're foolish. Yes, we're redeemed. Yes, we are declared righteous by God and indwelling sin is real. We are foolish often. And... Even, in, even maybe more than being foolish, we're blind. We're blind. So the sin, the indwelling sin in you and me, the indwelling sin in us keeps us from seeing us clearly. The sin in us keeps us from seeing us clearly. That matters. See, we excuse, we, how often, we all do this. We excuse ourselves in the way we think and act and behave. And we blame other people. What is that? It's hard-heartedness. Yeah, it's blindness. We are self-righteous and others condemning. Self-righteous, others condemning. It's blindness. We are spiritually blind often. And then to make matters worse, just to compound the problem. We are blind to our blindness. Right? So, like, where are we going to go? Where are we going to look? Because... This, I'm not trusting me, my mind, my heart as being the infallible guide and assessor of how I'm doing. And if you're trusting that, we need to have a conversation. You know, where are we going to go? Because we don't see ourselves clearly. We think we do, but we don't. We don't know ourselves accurately, though we are flat out convinced that we do. We don't. So we need God's word. We need God's law. It is the most effective mirror in the world. You want to assess you honestly, really? Look into the mirror of the law of God. And that's true certainly with respect to that first use where it shows you your sin and drives you to Christ. But it's also true with respect to this third use too. It shows you and me where we're wrong. It shows us where we need to grow. And then it gives us an accurate picture of ourselves. An accurate picture of how we're doing. And then certainly in all of it, friends, we trust Christ. We trust that our sin has been covered by His life and His death and His resurrection. We rely upon the Holy Spirit to continue to work in us. And He works in us through the Word of God. He works in us through the sacraments of the church. And He works in us through the people of God, the church. So we continue to apply those means that God has given us. 
and we rely upon His Spirit as we trust Christ. Because when we assess ourselves honestly in light of the law of God, it's often not pretty. Change is necessary. It is in my life and it is in yours. And only God can affect that kind of change. But the law is the instrument that the Lord uses to show us how we need to change. How we need to grow. So a helpful way to think about this, just the kind of relationship that you have with the law now as a believer. And this again is not unique to me. Others through history have said this. The law drives us to Jesus. And then Jesus in turn drives us back to the law. The law drives us to Jesus. And then Jesus in turn drives us back to the law. Because we now love God. And we want to live for God. We want to live in a way that pleases God. We understand that the law of God is good and wise. And so why would I want to live contrary to it? Because of regeneration, the new birth that we experience by faith in Christ, we then are driven back to the law to know how to live. And this is not a condemnatory thing. So this is where kind of personal beef of mine is how so often in our evangelical churches, the law is preached to the Christian in a condemnatory way. The law of God is preached to Christians in this kind of threatening tone. I really don't have much tolerance for that. Because the law, I mean, Romans 8, I mean, the law no longer condemns you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is to condemn? It's Christ who died, right? It's God who justifies. So we're not proclaiming and heralding the law as good. Yes, we're doing that. But we're not proclaiming and heralding it as this thing that condemns you as a believer. And sometimes people draw these ridiculous human conclusions. It's like, well, if the law isn't threatening to me, if the law can't condemn me now, then somehow it it doesn't really have authority or it can't really be useful in my life. And that's just a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. The law of God does not condemn, and the law of God is awesome, infallible, good, the guide that you should strive to live by. And praise God for His grace in your failings. So we're not saying jettison the law. It's just, hey, let's not bludgeon people to death with it. Because Christ has done it. Christ has fulfilled it. So now let's walk together according to what God says is good. And let's walk with compassion and charity in our weakness, knowing that Christ is our righteousness. So to go to the law out of love for God and out of a sincere desire to live in a way that honors Him and out of a sincere desire because you know, like, I want to live like that because it's good for me, that's right. That's how God uses His law in the life of the Christian. And so I want to land this plane, friends, by just still thinking about this issue of what's the place of the law in your life as a believer. I want to land the plane with just what I'm going to call some pastoral advice. I'm I'm just just being real here. Like, I think sometimes guys are tempted to preach application and some of this kind of advice stuff as though it's like, thus saith the Lord, right? And, and I don't really want to do that. Like, I, I want to be honest with you. Like, I, I think that I'm reasoning from biblical principle here. And I think this really is good and helpful, what I'm about to say. But I'm not, I'm not going to preach this 
the same way that I just preached that first use of the law, for example. So do with this what you will. Wrestle with it. I'm personally convinced this is true. So when it comes to this using the law effectively in our lives as Christians and and striving to live in a way that honors and pleases God, I think we tend to ridiculously overcomplicate things. I think we tend to want to codify everything in a way that's really unhelpful. And we end up coming up, it, it feels very pharisaical how they had come up with so many laws and regulations and rules that had to be lived by, this code. It feels like we kind of do that in evangelical Christianity to me sometimes. And so I want to maybe just kind of liberate and maybe refresh us all with just a few thoughts. Thinking about living for God. How can I think about that in a way that's not complicated? Here we go. I'm taking my cue from the Lord Jesus, essentially, when he said in Matthew 22 and other places, what we looked at earlier. He gave the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said there was a second commandment that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he told us that that sums up the law and the prophets. That, those two things, that one commandment and the other that's like it, sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, it sums up God's revelation. It's a pretty substantial statement. Like, Jesus, really? The Bible's a big book, man. You know, and you're telling me that that sums up the law and the prophets. How so? So, think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. We read them earlier. The Ten Commandments, we understand, were given on not only two tablets of stone, but what are often referred to as the two tables of the law. On the first table of the law were the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not make the name of the Lord, or take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. First table of the law. It deals with how we relate to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First table of the law. Relationship with God. The second table of the law. The last six commandments. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet what your neighbor has. Those deal, obviously, in how we relate to one another. Love your neighbor. In that sense, love God, love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself very much sums up the Ten Commandments, the law. There are many places in the prophets where we could go, where the Lord makes it quite clear that what he cares about is the heart, that he requires mercy and not sacrifice. He desires that we would practice justice and do good, and all these things. He cares for the widow and the fatherless, countless things. So Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself sums up the law and the prophets. That's, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but I am just like, Jesus, thank you so much for simplifying it for me like that. Not reducing it in some bad way, but making knowing my frame and making it, okay, I can understand that. Like those are two things that can be on my radar screen all the time. Love God, love my neighbor. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. It's kind of him that he would give us that formula. I mean, I'm going to call it that. It's really kind. And so those comments of the Lord Jesus are perfectly in alignment with what I would call the outwardly oriented Christian life. Rather than being obsessed with you 
and your own growth and sanctification or how you're doing. Be obsessed in every good way with loving God and loving your neighbor. Outwardly orient yourself. Right? Don't make it all about introspection. Not much good happens there. Actually, growth is stunted by that kind of thinking. What's amazing is that when you get your eyes off yourself and you're thinking, I'm going to love God, I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to trust Christ, that's when growth really happens. Right? This is, this is freeing. Like, I don't, I don't have to memorize. I'm not saying it's bad. Please. I mean, Scripture memory is great. But you don't need to memorize the book of Leviticus in order to please God. The Lord Jesus loves you and told you what to do. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So for me, this is sort of personal. And and again, this is advice. Things that are kind of on my radar screen in the Christian life are few. And I I don't think I'll be misunderstood here. They're few and they're high level. Like day in, day out, what do I want on my mind and heart? Few things that are high level. Number one for me, trust Christ. Trust Christ. It's where I start your day. That first use. I'm a sinner. I'm not righteous in and of myself. Christ is my righteousness. He's my Savior. And I am trusting Him. I'm resting in Him. That's pretty simple. I'm an ordinary human being covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise God that that's true. Second piece, I want to live my life in utter reliance upon the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Don't ever want to get this confused that I'm the one doing this. Don't ever want to get this confused that we are the ones doing this. God is doing this by His grace. We desperately need God's grace. Like, beat that into your mind and heart. I am not done yet. God is not done yet with me. And I need his grace today. Okay, next thing. Humility before the Lord. Related. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of mercy. Humble posture before God. Not this kind of proud, self-justifying, self-righteous business. I'm a sinner and I need mercy. It's like the tax collector in Luke 18. Beat your breast and don't look to heaven because you know you're a sinner. Humility before God. Fourth, gratitude to God. I'm thankful. First, that He's saved me. Second, that He's given me all of these graces that I'm looking at right now. I mean, we, are, we tend to be, we talked about this earlier, a group of guys did. I mean, we, we tend to just kind of take for granted the mercies of God that are new every day. We shouldn't. We should, in one sense, discipline ourselves to see them. Pray that we would have eyes to see His mercies that are new. Like, God, you've given me a lot of good things. Even in this life, you've given me good things, and thank you for that. So a posture of gratitude before God. And then lastly, love and consideration and compassion towards my brothers and sisters, towards my neighbor. Love, consideration, compassion. So I'm just going to state those things. And it's five things. It's not many things. Pretty simple. I think it's... Relatively comprehensive. Trust Christ. Rely upon the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Humility before God. Gratitude to God. Love, consideration, and compassion to other people. 
If we're doing those things and those things are on the front of our minds, I think we're doing well. I think we're doing well. It's not rocket science. You know, it's not overly complicated. The Christian life is unfathomably deep, but it is remarkably simple sometimes. And so it's like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up every day and I'm going to have this approach. I'm going to cast myself on the mercy of Christ and rest in Him. I'm going to rely upon the Spirit and the grace of God today. I'm going to walk humbly and with gratitude before my God, and I'm going to love people, and I'm going to have a good day. It's Christian life, kind of reduced down. It's a Christian life. It's not overly complex. Praise God that that's true. And all of this is related to how God uses His law in your life as a Christian. It's good of Him that He gave it to us. And praise God that it no longer condemns us. And that's because of Christ and Christ alone. So let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your law that's good and wise. We thank you on the one hand that it cuts us in half and shows us our desperate condition and our desperate need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that so many in this room have come to know him and trust him. And we do pray for us that we would live lives that honor you. We pray that we would want to glorify you, that we would want to do what's good according to your good word and your good law. And we do pray that we would be able to live lives that are, on the one hand, simple, and on the one hand, incredibly deep and meaningful, even in our interactions with others. Continue to transform us and change us because only you can. Continue to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Continue to give us faith in him. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.